If you all um, have your Bibles or apps or something, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open to Micah chapter 5. This morning, I want to talk to you. Uh, I want to hopefully give us all a word of encouragement here at year's end and the start of a new year by talking about expectation. Uh, Specifically, I want to talk about the great expectation that we have as Christians, knowing that God, that we follow and serve a God who is faithful to his promises. Expectation that we serve a God who is faithful to his promises, and I hope that we can find encouragement in this season um, of suffering and trial and going into this new year, still not knowing exactly what to expect. This has been a dark season for each of us in different times and in different ways, but I think in this shared darkness that we've had together, God has been teaching his people uh, to draw closer to him. He's been getting our attention. And I think it's in our darkest days where often our faith is strengthened and renewed. I know it has been for mine in this last year, and I trust that maybe it has been for you as well. I've been reading, well, I just, I finally completed uh, Ron Cherno's very long uh, Hamilton biography, 729 pages, I think. (laughs) Uh, I did not read the acknowledgement section. I was done by then. But... um, uh, both my wife and I have a real affinity for Hamilton after seeing the play this year on Disney+. Plus. I'm sure many of you enjoyed that as well. And so now that I, she doesn't, she's not here, she doesn't know this yet, but the next time we watch it together, I'm going to be very annoying uh, to watch it with, you know, because I'll be pausing and, well, what actually happened, right? Okay, we can, now we can keep going. Um, but one of the great questions that I think Christians sometimes ask of early church Uh, not early church, but early American founding fathers, is to what extent maybe did they have a a saving Christian faith, right? I think sometimes we're in conflict about that. We know that some were deists and others maybe were Christians. We don't really know where they all stood. And that that was definitely a question that I was asking when reading the Alexander Hamilton. Uh, In his youth, he had a great Christian fervor. Most of his adult years are characterized by apathy towards anything religious especially Christianity, occupied by the successes of his political and legal careers, and of course the sin of his affair with Mariah Reynolds, Hamilton really shows no evidence of any thought for God for the majority of his adult life. But in his last years, um, prior to his death, that all seemed to change. Beaten down by the fallout of his affair gone public, the decline of his political career and his legal career and his influence, the death of his oldest son, Philip, Hamilton returned to to the religious zeal of his youth. And so he gave himself to the study of the Bible. He led daily uh, devotionals in his home with his children. And he even began attending services with his devout wife, Eliza. In fact, he said it was his Christian convictions which set him against the practice of dueling and motivated his decision to famously throw away his shot in the duel against Aaron Burr. Well, I wonder if 2020 hasn't been a similar experience for many of us. The season, I think, has stripped many of us of the pursuits and the passions that many of us had. 
and we're so preoccupied with, and it's here maybe together in this place where our zeal and faith in the Lord can be renewed and strengthened. And so as we look at this familiar text in Micah chapter 5, I'm trusting God to remind us of his promises and the hope and the expectation we can have in him. So let's turn our attention to Micah chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray and we do ask that during this time that we would, um, you would give us the humility by your Spirit to sit under your word and to receive it, not thinking ourselves able to sit over it and judge it for ourselves. I pray that you would fill us with great hope as we look at your promises and great expectation as we head into this new year, knowing that you are the God who is faithful to his word and the God who keeps his promises. Strengthen our hearts and encourage us now during this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to make sense of this text together under three headings. First, the present darkness. Second, an unbreakable promise. And third, our great expectation. So our present darkness, an unbreakable promise, and our great expectation. If you have your Bibles or your apps open, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to take a step back from Micah chapter 5 and look at the end of chapter 4, specifically verse 13. You see, Micah, the short, uh, the short book of Micah, follows a pattern that many uh, of the prophets follow, which is a pattern of judgment and salvation. So proclamations of judgment and then promises of future salvation. Judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. That pattern repeats three times. And here in chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, we find ourselves in one of the sections of great uh, promises of salvation. And so chapter 4 is this great uh, crescendo of promises about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And it crescendos here in verse 13, and it says, And arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. hope you can understand what this prophecy of future salvation meant for the nation of Israel because they were in a present situation where there was much darkness, where they were facing uh, attacks from outside forces and outside nations coming against their city and their people. But what we have here in verse 13 is a picture of the utter destruction of the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. Though they gather against Israel, the nations rage and plot in vain, the psalmist said. God will give his enemies over to destruction in a final act of justice 
ensuring the victory and protection of his people. I know you all finished the book of Jonah, right? And so maybe you can see where uh, Jonah got some of his faulty theology from. He wanted this to happen now. What we have here at the end of Micah 4, though, is not a now, it's a not yet. It's a picture of the final judgment of God's enemies, what we often call an end times prophecy. I know that language of end times prophecy maybe has some bad vibes around it because of what we see and hear on TV with people who are on you know, the street corners yelling about end times prophecy. But that's not what we have in mind here when we say that. What we have in mind is just this is a promise of what it's going to be like in the end. When God executes his final act of justice on the world, it's a promise that like a rock skipping across the water has implications for the present, but ultimately lands at some point in the future. This is a promise of protection and victory for God's people. And it gives us hope now that one day God will be true to his word and rid this world of violence, of oppression, and all the unjust forces that we see in this world. We can hope and know and expect that one day there will be true, eternal, and lasting peace. But such a promise is rudely interrupted by verse 1 of chapter 5. Clause is a little bit difficult to translate in the Hebrew. The ESV simply says, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. You might have a translation that says, uh, city of troops, or something like that. The word for troop here is pointing to a really small group of soldiers. Israel, being surrounded by outside forces, having been beaten down so many times, uh, they cannot summon an army. They do not have a large force to muster and defend them. At this point, they have meager military resources. And so the command here to muster your troops is a futile one. It's a futile command in the face of a siege coming from outside to be laid against the city. And so that's the idea here. There is a promise of final victory, but right now, from the human perspective, everything looks hopeless. The assailants, it says, will strike the cheek of the judge of Israel. And I hope you can understand how insulting that is. It's so condescending that the leader of Israel isn't even being called a king, but is simply being called a judge. While God promised victory in the future, What the people faced in the present was total humiliation, complete destruction, and utter darkness. And this is so often where God begins his work, isn't it? In our darkness, in our helplessness. We often don't know why God allows for darkness and tribulation to persist in this world or in our lives. And I know many of you can relate to seasons, years, perhaps even now, where it just feels dark and helpless. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you didn't expect, or job loss in financially difficult times. As I was talking about earlier in the prayer time, uh, when my wife and I came here to Potomac Hills, we were in the middle of a very 
dark season. We had just come out of a spiritually abusive environment. We weren't sure what the Lord had for us. We were facing financial struggles, great discouragement. A few months into our stay here, we had a miscarriage, which was just heartbreaking for us. And in each case, it was impossible for us to see what God was doing in those moments of darkness. And it was all we could do to hold on to his gracious promises. We had seen God be faithful in the past, and so we said to one another that we would trust him to be faithful again in the future, even if we see no way out right now. And as we did so, we were calmed by a sense of peace, which we know can only be found in Christ. The 17th century Puritan John Flavel captured this thought well when he said this, and I quote, he said, if believers only thoroughly understood, understood how dear they are to God, what value they are in his eyes, and how well they are secured by his faithful promises and gracious presence, they would not tremble at every noise and appearance of danger, end quote. We don't always know why God allows darkness to befall us, but we can trust that he will be faithful to us. The guarantee of this unbreakable promise is found in Christ, which is exactly where our author, where Micah takes us next, to this unbreakable promise which we find in Christ. The juxtaposition of chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 1 is purposeful because it sets up for us the promise that is found in verse 2. How will God achieve his final victory? How will he execute this final judgment and achieve peace for his people? How is that going to happen when it seems so dark now in the present? The answer is he's going to do it through the king. He's going to do it through the king. While all of the surrounding verses are in the voice of the prophet, in verse 2 we hear the voice of God himself. The Lord declares that out of Bethlehem will come a king. And the significance of Bethlehem here is threefold. First, it is the town where David's family was from. It's the town where David's family was from. And so, by mentioning Bethlehem as the birthplace of the king, we are to recall God's promise to David that his descendants will sit on the throne forever. We are supposed to remember God's promise that, he, that, David, that David's descendants will be on the throne forever. Second, the significance of Bethlehem is precisely its insignificance. It's so small that it isn't even numbered among the 46 cities of Judah in Joshua 15. God has made much out of insignificance in the past, and he will do it again when his victorious king comes out of Bethlehem into this world. Which means that third, the mention of Bethlehem here has an ominous ring to it. When this victorious future king comes into the world, it will not be in riches and in power in Jerusalem, the city where the kings rule, but it will be in poverty and squalor in an insignificant, not even worth mentioning place 
like Bethlehem. That this king is born in Bethlehem and not in Jerusalem assumes that the family line of David will have lost the throne. The royal line seemingly will have failed. Israel will have been conquered. And for a new king to arise, God will go all the way back to the stump of Jesse, where it all began so many centuries before. This new king will be for me, says God. He will rule over God's people. He will be a king whose coming forth is from ancient days, even from eternity past. This king will be God himself, born into insignificance to redeem and save his people. In Luke 2, we read that by means of a Roman census, Mary and Joseph returned to Bethlehem to be registered. And it was here where the lowly babe was born, in this insignificant place, to fulfill what God had promised in the days of Micah. The king had come. You see, this promise in verse 2 and its fulfillment in Christ answers many questions about the nature of the promises of God. With the royal line defunct, has God's judgment demolished God's promises? Will the tree of Jesse remain a stump forever? Will God be unfaithful to his word? Has he given us cause not to trust him? Will he remain silent while I cry out in darkness? The answer, beloved, in every case is no. 20th century theologian Herman Bovink made the connection between God's promises and their fulfillment in the birth of Christ when he wrote, and I quote, the content of God's revelation has the one great comprehensive promise of the covenant of grace, which is, I will be God unto thee, and you will be my people. And as its high point, this revelation has its Emmanuel, God with us. For the promise and the fulfillment go hand in hand. End quote. You see, here in Micah, we find exactly what we need during this Christmas season and as we head into this new year. We find an ancient, unbreakable promise that God has and will save his people. And he's done it all in Christ. And he's going to do it all in Christ. And this is the foundation for our hope and our expectation for the future. Our great expectation for the future. So how should we respond to such a promise? How should we respond knowing that the king has come and will come? That the king has saved and will save. Who has restored and will restore all of creation. We find out how some people responded to this promise in the Gospels. In John 7, we read that some of the people played ignorant and pretended not to know that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. 
And it wasn't that they didn't know the truth. It was that they didn't want to know the truth. So they played ignorant. The severe response comes in Matthew 2. When King Herod heard that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, what was his response? Was it to bow down and worship? He didn't even play ignorant. But in a violent rage, he had his servants go to Bethlehem and kill all the male children two years and under. He couldn't stomach the thought of anyone sitting on a throne other than himself. He couldn't stomach the thought of giving his allegiance to anyone other than himself. And so what is your response to the promise of the king this morning? I don't know where each of you listening to this message this morning are coming from, especially I don't know how many of you might be watching online. Maybe you're still exploring Christianity and you just sort of stumbled across this on your Facebook feed and you find some of Christianity's teachings hard to accept and you have lots of questions and that's okay. That's okay. We're really glad you're listening this morning and I think I can speak from experience that you would find Potomac Hills a safe place to have your questions and your doubts answered and to explore Christ for yourself. But one question you might be working through, and I know this is common for many, is it has to do with the ongoing presence of darkness and evil in this world. Perhaps you wonder, how could this promise about the king be true if so much darkness still exists? Why hasn't God done something about it? Great question. The answer, you see, is that he has. But it's not in the way that any of us would expect. He has not destroyed evil and suffering from afar and from above, from a distance, as we might expect him to. And for this, we should all be grateful. For if he judged the world as a distant judge, we would all be caught up in the judgment. Not one of us would survive because the Bible says that each and every one of us has been born into sin and is deserving of God's just judgment. Apart from Christ, we stand condemned as one of God's enemies. But our God is not a God of justice alone, but also a God of grace. And so he did not simply judge the world from afar, but he came to save the world from within. You see in verse 3, it says here that the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Meaning, those who follow the king shall return to him. You see, the teaching of the Bible is clear. Here, or in places like Romans 8 or Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus rejoices in identifying and being joined to his people. So much so that we are called his brothers and his sisters. And being so joined to his people, it says in verse 4 that he stands among his people as a shepherd in whom they can dwell secure. Yes, a final judgment is coming, as we've seen, where sin, evil, and God's enemies are destroyed. But in the meantime, God is redeeming and saving 
a people for himself. See, this is how God has determined both to defeat evil and to save the people that he loves. And so what does that mean for you? The Bible teaches us that on our own, each and every one of us is helpless to get to God on our own. We are each and every one of us as helpless to save ourselves as Israel was to save themselves in verse 1. Any efforts to make ourselves right with God are futile. But there is hope for you and for me, and it is found in the King. And so let me just ask you, you who are here, you who are watching online, will you trust in the King this morning? And not just the King, but the Shepherd, the one who will protect you, guide you, care for you, the one in whom you can dwell secure. Will you look forward with eager expectation to what the king has and will do for his people? And if you have any questions about that, I know you can contact someone here at the church, contact Dr. Dave, his emails on the website, there's other emails on the website. There are many people here who would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in the king. But let me draw your attention now, for those who are here, for those who are watching, who have put your faith in the King, let me just mention three things that you can look forward to with great expectation. Three things that we can find in this text. First, limited affliction. Limited affliction. You see in verse 3, it says, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. God's people will suffer, and there will be affliction, but it will come to an end. Sometime after the king who is to come, affliction will end. And if we know this to be true, then we can face all suffering now with a sober hope. Sober because we know that suffering is a promised reality. You see, even though a siege may be coming against us, even though this present suffering may seem hopeless and impossible, we can endure. Suffering has a way of eliciting strong reactions from us, doesn't it? I think sometimes we can give ourselves, there's one of two kind of extremes we can fall into. One extreme is we can give ourselves over to despair. We can be um, just consumed by the darkness and think, okay, there's no way out. I cannot endure this. And we collapse under the weight of our darkness. Other times, we are consumed by a great fervor trying to save ourselves and get ourselves out of our suffering. We despair because we heap condemnation on ourselves and we strive thinking that we are capable to save ourselves. We think we don't deserve it, maybe. We think we don't deserve the suffering, so we strive. We think we do deserve it, and so we collapse. But the message of God to us through Micah says, it doesn't matter whether you think you deserve suffering or not. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. Why? 
because it's a reality for all of us. It's a reality for all of us. Suffering will come for each and every one of us. You can't escape it. And so do not despair and do not think yourself highly able to to protect yourself from the suffering of this world. But be sober-minded about its reality in this fallen world we live in. But we must not only be uh, sober, but hopeful, because we know that one day God will bring it to an end, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. You know, I have a great fear of needles. I know I'm very large, and they are very small. Uh, But one time, a number of years ago, I made the foolish decision to go and give blood uh, immediately after a workout, when my uh, pace was still uh, elevated, or my heart rate was still elevated. And uh, so I went, and the blood uh, was donated very quickly, and I quickly uh, lost consciousness. And it was not a pleasant feeling. And that is a feeling I now recall every time I go to the doctor's office to give a sample or to get a shot or anything like that. And so I tense up, and my heart rate escalates, and the nurses look at me like, what's wrong with you? Um, But I can't help it because I just have this recollection of what it was like uh, to faint when I was giving blood. But what gets me through every time is knowing that it's small and temporary. Small and temporary and that it will pass. Beloved, this present darkness will not endure forever. It will not. We don't know if it gets better in 2021. We don't exactly know when the vaccines come. We don't know when things will go back to normal or if normal, this is the new normal. We just don't know. But I know, and I think many of us know, that a world is coming where the light swallows up the darkness. And we know the resurrection day is approaching, and so we can hold on. We can hold on. Second, we can expect restored unity. Look at the second half of verse 3 into verse 4. It says that Israel shall return along with the rest of Christ's brothers. What is this speaking of? Well, speaking of the church. God's new people made of faithful Israelites and faithful believers from all tribes and every nation being brought together into one new unified community. This is a promise which is articulated several times in the Scripture, several times in the New Testament, but perhaps no more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 2. There the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ has abolished every dividing wall of hostility among those who believe in him. Christ is our peace. In other words, we have unity and peace with one another now in Christ. This is an actual and real and present peace that unites believers to one another. Say it another way. It's our job to create the peace. The peace exists. Want it for us. Our job is to live in light of that peace, to make it real and tangible, and to display it for a watching world who wants to know if peace among mankind is possible. How does the old carol go? Bid our sad division cease, be yourself our King of Peace. That's the promise. One day that will be true. It's hard to believe now, 
2020 has been one of the most discouraging years of my life at the church and all that tempts to divide us. And so perhaps more than anything else in this passage, this might be the promise and the expectation that's the hardest for me to believe. But as weak as my faith is, I know that one day this will be true. And it is true now in local churches that are united to one another through the gospel, who preach the gospel to themselves and to one another, and who do the hard work of living in light of Christ's peace with one another. As the gospel goes forward, as Christ's name is made great to the ends of the earth, peace and unity will go forward. God reconciles people to one another in small, insignificant local churches. He's done much through small, insignificant places in the past, and he does much through small, insignificant places now in the present. And so our fellowship now can be evidence of this promise, this promise of peace and unity. Third and finally, there's lasting security. You see in verses 4 and 5, we know that our salvation is secure in Christ, and thus we are spiritually secure now, and one day we shall dwell secure with him. Though markets may fail and collapse, though disease may threaten and take away, and though leaders may rise and fall, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And so, beloved, this new year, let us be reminded and let us remind one another of the expectation and the hope that we share. I don't know what darkness this year has brought for you. I don't know what we face tomorrow. But I do know that we have all we need in Christ. In Christ, there is strength for today and hope for tomorrow. And as we head into this new year, may we hold on with great expectation in him. Let's pray together. Father, our faith is weak. And we often stumble and fall. We give in to despair, or we try to muster strength for ourselves. And so often our reactions to this present darkness of the world just distances us from you. So we ask now, the close of this service, after the study of your word, that you would draw us closer to yourself, draw us closer to one another, and that you would strengthen our faith, that we may face with great expectation whatever is to come in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and this hope that we share together. We pray this in his name. Amen.